Thank you, Alison and Dorothy. Poor Jacob. He thought that this was the worst crisis of his life. By my reckoning, Jacob was coming towards 130 years old. So he had gone through plenty of crises in his life. But he said, everything's against me. That was his problem. Everything is against me. And he sat there with his head in his hands and the brothers round him. And they couldn't console him. After all, his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. So he thought, he's completely surrounded by famine. And he'd starve. The cruel governor of Egypt had taken a dislike to his sons, had accused them of being spies and imprisoned Simeon. So Simeon was as good as dead. Now he faces the threat of losing his next favorite son, Benjamin. The Egyptian governor has warned about them. There'll be no more grain unless they bring Benjamin with them on their next trip. And Jacob sees all these events as a succession of catastrophes piling up against him. Everything is against me. And his immediate reaction is to refuse even to contemplate Benjamin going anywhere. Everything's against me. Do you ever feel like that? I suppose it's only human. But this evening, I would like us to pause and think about Jacob's life. What he'd come through up to that point. And how he had coped and why he had coped through nearly 130 very adventurous years. In fact, let's ask ourselves, what were the the vital points that Jacob had forgotten about when he cried out, everything's against me? So I might have called this evening's uh, sermon, Jacob's Pilgrimage. Now I'm going to throw a lot of peas at you. See how many you can pick up as we go along and we'll summarize at the end. Let's go back to the beginning of Jacob's story. To a completely dysfunctional family where extreme favoritism, where deceit and trickery and connivance and lying were the order of the day. That was Isaac's family. The climax to Jacob's early life came when, first of all, he took advantage of his brother Esau's extreme hunger and uncontrolled appetite and beguiled him into exchanging his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Here's part of the conversation. You find it in chapter uh, 25. Esau said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. He'd just come in with some game in his hand, but he hadn't time to cook them. And Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Cool, calculating. He knew what would happen. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? So he sold it. He sold his birthright as the elder son to Jacob for a bowl of red 
lentil stew. Secondly, through complete deceit and lies and the connivance of his mother, Rebecca, he received his father's blessing, which was destined for the older son. Isaac trembled violently and said, This is when Esau came in. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, Esau. And I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. He couldn't change it. It was a kind of deathbed reading of the will. And that had been done. And the elder son should have got it, but he didn't. And as a result... Jacob's forced to flee for his life up north, ostensibly to find a wife, but in reality to escape the wrath and vengeance of Esau, who had sworn to kill him. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and when they're over, I'll kill him. By the way, if you remember the rest of the story... Isaac lived for at least 20 more years. So he wasn't on his deathbed at that time, but of course Esau wasn't to know. So, Jacob set out on a 400-mile journey. 400 miles. And he was walking. No camel. No donkeys. Walking. The place where Abraham had lived for some years, having come north from Ur of the Chaldees, and where part of the family still lived, headed up by Laban, his mother, Rebekah's brother. On the second night, now I, I'm, I'm judging it was the second night, because by the arrow you'll see he's gone a fair distance, actually it's about 55 miles. Could he walk 55 miles in one day? From here to Port Stewart? Well, doesn't matter. And he lighted in a certain place, and he lay down to sleep. Let's read from Genesis 28 and uh, verse 10. Genesis 28 and verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Let's leave it there. As we read, did you notice? Not one word of reproach in all that God said to him. 
no list of wrongdoings, no recrimination whatever. Instead, a set of wonderful promises and the revelation of God's purposes for Jacob. Here's an example of God's amazing grace. He meets us where we are and he gives us the message which exactly suits our circumstances. Verse 12. The stairway was a, a sign that there was communication between heaven and earth. God was accessible. Jacob wasn't left to his own devices. And the mention of descendants in verse 13 is interesting, isn't it? Jacob didn't even have a wife never named descendants as he lay there dreaming. And in verse 14, we read that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. That's a clear repetition of the promise that God gave to Abraham two generations before. And the dream is so clear and vivid that Jacob declares in verse 17, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called that place Bethel, the house of God. All of this marked an, an important, I need to say, unique milestone in Jacob's life. His first meaningful personal, spiritual encounter with the living God, the Lord. Have you had a Bethel like that? A meaningful, personal, spiritual encounter with the living God, the Lord. The key verse, I think, is verse 15. Where the Lord says to Jacob, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Two vital points here, and we've been through them both this morning and the evening again with Alison. First of all, we have the assurance of God's presence. I am with you. I will not leave you. You remember in the, in the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And the verses already quoted this evening, the writer to the Hebrews was quoting from Psalm 118 when he said, Aren't these wonderful words? God has said, Never will I leave you. And there's the emphasis on the never in the New International Version. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We have the assurance of God's presence. We also have the comfort of God's promises. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Maybe I should also add in there, or should have added in, the challenge of God's promises after what we heard this morning. David reminded us that through 25 years of waiting, waiting on a son to be born, waiting on a son that had been promised, according to Romans 4, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, being fully persuaded 
that God had power to do what he had promised. Isn't that wonderful? Are we in that position this evening? There's another verse I love from the Old Testament from uh, Numbers 23. That strange prophet Balaam hired to curse the people of Israel and he couldn't do it because God wasn't going to do it. And when he turned to the man who had hired him, he said, look, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? The comfort of God's promises and the challenge of God's promises. I think that the challenge to us all is do we know God's word well enough to claim God's promises in each circumstance in which we find ourselves. Because I like the NIV rendering of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, whatever your circumstances may be, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his promise. Don Carson sums up the lessons from Jacob's encounter in this rather long piece, but I read it for you. One of the great themes of Scripture is how God meets us where we are, in our insecurities, in our conditional obedience, in our mixture of faith and doubt, in our fusion of awe and self-interest, in our understanding and foolishness. God does not disclose himself only to the greatest and most stalwart, but to us at our Bethel, the house of God. Jacob's journey continued northeastwards towards Haran. Now, I, I can't go into the details. I just don't have time. I'm sure you, you know a lot of it. I'm sure a lot of you know all of it. But if you want to refresh your memories, if you want to read it for the first time, then read it in the modern translation. The New Living. Or the Message. It becomes, as far as I was concerned, I read it all through just this week by way of uh, stimulation and preparation. It's a real page-turner. The way the story's told. And the way people get involved. But I haven't time to go into the detail. At Haran, Jacob met his match in his uncle Laban. Because Laban was just as wily, scheming and calculating as Jacob was. So here were two people who would come together. And in 20 years, because Jacob was 20 years at Haran, remember, Laban changed his wages Ten times. He couldn't be trusted. Read it for yourselves. But over those years, difficult as they were, we see Jacob's persistence. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. He got no salary. He served seven years to get Rachel as his wife. 
But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And the romantic among us say, But of course, as you know, he got Leah instead. And so he worked another seven years to get Rachel. Laban's trickery at work. And add to those 14 years, six more, when Laban got him to work so that he could build up his flocks. And he did, in spite of all Laban's maneuvering. And you can read about the maneuverings there from uh, chapter 29 on. And later, as he protests to Laban, he says, Look, it was like this for the twenty years I was in your household. I worked for you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages ten times. Now, that's persistence. And in everything that happened, we see God's provision. God provided for Jacob through those twenty years. And indeed, Jacob prospered. It summed up for us at the end of chapter 30. In this way the man, as Jacob, grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and manservants and camels and donkeys. In fact, as we know, he had four wives, well, technically had two wives and two concubines. He had eleven children. He had hundreds of servants and countless flocks and herds and uh, after those 20 years Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father and Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been that's the scripture saying it Chapter 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, the Lord took the initiative once again, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. God's promise renewed once again. So, he asked his two wives to meet him out in the countryside where, where nobody could overhear what they were saying. And he told them his plan. He told them how the Lord had appeared to him. And told them to go back to his native land. And they agreed. Verse 16 says, They told him, Do whatever the Lord has told you. So, when Laban was away shearing sheep, this is what the Bible says. And of course, that would be day's journey and it would take him days to do it. While he got Laban away in the distance. Jacob and all his entourage set off toward his old home. And the Bible account tells us, chapter 31, verse 20, that Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, and crossing the river, that's crossing Euphrates, coming south again, he headed for the hill country of Gilead. I don't know how he, I have drawn a straight line on the map, but I don't know how he got there, whether he, which side he came. Well, he came, certainly came down to uh, the highlands of Gilead and the arrow point to that, just at the corner of the oblong. Bigger scale map will come to in a minute. He reached the hill country of Gilead. 
He was away three days before Laban was told he'd gone. And Laban took seven days to cover all that distance. Of course, he could go far faster. He was probably riding on fast camels with his relatives. And there was uh, Jacob with his flocks and his herds and his small children. We can work out the eldest, Reuben, couldn't have been more than 13 years old. So he had small children. And uh, all those flocks needed grazing as they went along. And when Laban arrived, the two men had a real set to. Laban saying, What have you done? This is chapter 31, verse 26. You deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren my daughters goodbye. Well, Jacob wasn't standing for that. Here we have Jacob's protest. He said to him, not on the screen, in chapter 31, verse 40, This was my situation, said Jacob. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, I like that, he'd seen Isaac worshipping before this Lord in awe and wonder with real fear. And the fear of Isaac. If this God had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. In fact, last night the Lord had spoken to Laban and had said, be careful what you say to Jacob when you meet him. Jacob claimed, in what he said there, he claimed God's presence. And he acknowledged God's provision, despite all Laban's trickery over those 20 years. Now, in the end, they parted amicably enough. They made a goodwill covenant and they used a heap of stones to be a a permanent memorial so that anyone passing could say, yes, that's the place where Laban and Jacob made the covenant together. Interesting. A little sideline. I couldn't avoid this. Laban called that heap of stones... Yegar Sahadutha. Jacob called it Galid. Now, why the two names? Now, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to mislead you. There weren't two names. It was the fact that Laban was speaking Aramaic and Jacob was speaking Hebrew. Did you notice he was called Laban the Aramean? He spoke a different language, 400 miles different. 400 miles apart, two different languages. Does not take you back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Now I know the languages are somewhat connected. And certainly over 20 years, Jacob would have learned to be fluent in Aramaic. But notice, he was going back home. He was going back down again, southward, towards his own old homeland. And he was getting into his Hebrew once more. The language of the Lord. Well,
He'd come out of one crisis with Laban and straight into another. He hadn't seen his brother for 20 years, but the last time he'd seen him, Esau was threatening to kill him. In fact, he'd vowed to kill him once his father was dead. So he's preparing to meet Esau, and he's got to Ramoth Gilead. He couldn't have any peace of mind until he was reconciled with his brother. But the big question was, how would Esau receive him? We read, Jacob also went on his way, that's from Ramoth Gilead, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Two camps. Number one, God's camp. With God's guardian angels there. Number two camp, his camp. Four wives, eleven children, and thousands of animals along with his servants. But God's camp was there. And that was the important thing as far as Jacob was concerned. He was now sure of God's protection in this dreaded meeting with Esau. And chapter 32, verse 3 says, He sent messengers on ahead to inform Esau that he was on his way home. And back came the disturbing news that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. Can you imagine how he felt? And uh, Genesis 32, verse 7 says, In great fear and distress. I don't blame him. Now, he made meticulous preparation for the meeting. It's rather funny, rather, well, rather laughable. He got together five herds of different sorts of animals, from camels through to sheep. And I you can calculate it for yourselves there, but there must have been something around 600 animals in five different herds, all going one after the other, each with an attendant. And Esau would come to the first one and say, Who's these? These are from your servant, Jacob. Come to the next one. What's happening here? These are from... I've become kind of fascinated. And uh, I suppose Jacob hoped that would soften Esau up. Anyway, he made that vital preparation. But he made a more vital preparation when he prayed. Look at chapter 32, verses 9 to 12. I won't take time to um, read them through, first of all. But look what he's saying. In chapter 32, verse 9, he says, O Lord... You see, this Lord isn't just the God of his ancestor... Abraham, or the God of his father Isaac. He's his God. He's addressing him personally. He's saying, O oh Lord, this God is his personal God. And Jacob reminds the Lord of his promises. God had said to him, Go back to your country and your relatives. I and I will make you prosper. Not to be killed by Esau. And then in verse 10, he confesses his unworthiness. And he acknowledges God's goodness 
and provision for him over the past 20 years. And in verses 11 and 12, we have his heartfelt plea as he claims God's promise once again. Surely God will protect him and his family. It's a wonderful prayer, a very personal prayer. Here's a man who knows the Lord personally. And he clearly has that personal relationship with Almighty God. But Jacob's encounter with God that night wasn't over by any means. We read in verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. But of course it wasn't a man. Jacob knew that. He was wrestling with God and received a change of name and another blessing. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob answered, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, this is 32 and verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God. That's what Israel means, struggle with God and with men and have overcome. It had taken 20 years, but now Jacob the Twister was a transformed character. Israel, the one who had struggled with God and had overcome. Israel, the name that would be given to the twelve tribes, his sons, and from whom would come Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in verse 29 we read, then he blessed them there. Jacob was facing a crisis, probably the biggest crisis in his life. But God took the initiative and came to him as a wrestling opponent. And Jacob soon realized that God was in control. The fact that he limped, maybe he limped for the rest of his life, must have been a, a reminder of that fact. So Jacob called that place Peniel, face of God, saying, this is verse 30, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The meeting with Esau went off far better than Jacob could ever have expected. Chapter 33, verses 3 and 4. In fact, Esau took the initiative. Jacob went on ahead of his whole family and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Jacob couldn't possibly have foreseen that happening. And in the end, when they greeted their families and so on, they went their own ways. Esau back down to Seir, down to the southeast of the Dead Sea. But Jacob had no notion of following him, though he said he would. He uh, turned west, crossed the River Jordan, and came to Shechem. Just a word about Shechem. Chapter 33:19 tells us, For a hundred pieces of silver... Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. I haven't time to go into Shechem, but there's another lovely aside there concerning that. Shechem was the first place I'm started, uh, where Abraham had stopped 
to make an altar to the Lord when Abraham had come south and the Canaanites were in the land at that time. I believe Shechem was a place of shrines, a place of worship. And uh, Abraham built an altar to the Lord God, his God, in all the midst of the pagan gods. And here was Jacob coming to Shechem. Shechem is in the history of um, Israel, from Abraham right through, right through to the judges. Gideon's son was uh, crowned at Shechem hundreds of years later. And by the way, there's a big tree there right from Abraham's time. And it was still there in the book of Judges, an oak tree. But follow that through for yourselves. The other the, the, the side, our side of which I wanted to give you was, it was in this very plot of ground that Jacob bought that day that the bones of Joseph were buried hundreds of years later. Remember Joseph had his kith and kin promised they'd take him with them when they left Egypt. Because God said they would. And his sarcophagus was carried for those 40 years all around the wilderness. And in the end, it was buried in this plot of ground that Jacob bought that day at Shechem. But, there at Shechem, he set up an altar. He set up an altar. And he called it El Elohe Israel. That's verse 20. And that means, mighty is the God of Israel. Again, it's Jacob's proclamation. He wanted everybody to know here was his God in the midst of all the pagan gods. It's like calling out a watchword. Mighty is the God of Israel. Our God is so big, so great, and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. This was Jacob in his day, singing that sort of song, so that everybody was known would know. Mighty is the God of Jacob. Jacob's proclamation. Do we proclaim our God like that? Well. The dreadful incident concerning the rape of Dinah and the aftermath by her brothers is recorded for us in chapter 34. I pass over that quickly. But then God said to Jacob, go back to Bethel. Chapter 35, verse 1. Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother brother Esau. Back to Bethel. But, and again, I'll simply pass over it, there was a problem of foreign gods among these people, among his servants. Well, they were Arameans. They had their household gods. And I skipped over the story of Rachel, who took her father's household gods. Why? Well, anyway, Jacob said to his people, Get rid of the household gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. So they brought all the household gods to him. And where did he bury them? Under the great oak at Shechem and then come let us go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone wonderful testimony wonderful proclamation and that Bethel God said to him 
I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. This is chapter 35, 11. A nation and the community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. God's promise renewed. God's promise amplified. And verse 14 tells us that Jacob repeated what he'd done over those 20 years ago. And he poured oil on a stone and worshipped God there. Professor Wiseman, in his commentary on this passage, quotes a well-known hymn and says, New perils past, new sins forgiven, separate the two occasions that uh, Jacob had been to battle. To make the second inwardly richer than the first. And here's what I loved about what Wiseman said. God's repetitions, if this is a sample, are turns of a spiral rather than a wheel. Good watchword for 2011 for us in Windsor. Back to Bethel. But not just to repeat the blessings of past years. No, it's not a wheel going round the circle. It's a spiral. New experiences. New worship. New depths or heights in God. Yes, Jacob did what he'd done 20 years before, but it's a spiral, remember. Not, not just a wheel going around. One more episode before I finish, which is recorded for us. Rather sad, more than sad. On his way south, Bethel, home, was further down. He came to towards Ephrath, which is modern Bethlehem. And in verse 16 we're told that Rachel gave birth to her second son, but she died in childbirth. She'd always wanted a second son. Rachel, remember, favorite wife? but only one son. In fact, did you know what she called her first son? Because you say, of course I do, Joseph. Well, what does Joseph mean? Joseph means, give me another one. How would I to be called, give me another one? Well, more formally it would be, please add, please add but it meant the same thing. And she had a son, but she died in childbirth. She would have called that son Ben-Onai, which means son of my trouble. But Jacob called his new son Benjamin, son of my right hand, favored one. From birth, given a favoured place in his father's affection but there's nothing new in that it happened long ago and so Jacob came home to his father Isaac then living in Hebron where the family had been for three generations and Isaac died at the age of 180 and chapter 35 ends on a united note verse 29 his two sons Esau and Jacob buried him. But look, 
seven or eight years later, we read, as we read in chapter 42, Jacob sits with his head in his hands, tormented by his most recent difficulty. Jacob's problem? Everything's against me. I wonder, when he was sitting there, did he think back over everything that God had done for him in the past 27 to 30 years? Had he learned anything at all from his pilgrimage? Well, I've scattered a lot of peas this evening. I wonder how many of them you picked up. Jacob, remember his promise at Bethel? I will serve this God. Remember his persistence, sorry, shouldn't be there, his persistence and his prosperity at Haran, in spite of Laban's trickery? Remember his wonderful prayer before Peniel? Remember his proclamation at Shechem, Mighty is the God of Israel, one man, my God. But the more important thing is God's part in all of this. Jacob had learned that God's purposes were always fulfilled. God's presence was always assured. God's promises were always certain. God's provision was always abundant. God's protection was always adequate. Let us make sure that in our present circumstances, whatever those circumstances may be, in the context set those circumstances in the context of all that God is and all that he has done for us and trust him to work out the future for us. That's what I've learned from the life and pilgrimage of Jacob.